EU Confidential gets started in just a moment. Today's episode is presented by Google. This is Karen from Google. People and businesses are expecting technology to deliver more, not less, for Europe's post-COVID future. And Google is investing in products and policies to support recovery and boost innovation. To accept yourself being gay was my most difficult thing. To accept it myself, how to say to my parents. And to hear now that uh, it is because maybe I watched something on TV when I was younger is unacceptable. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And that was Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Bettel speaking in very personal terms shortly before last week's EU summit in Brussels about his opposition to the new Hungarian anti-LGBTQ plus measures that have caused a political storm across Europe. Measures that would ban the portrayal of homosexuality to people under the age of 18. Bettel spoke in similar terms to fellow leaders, including Hungary's Viktor Orban, around the summit table in a debate that was unusually personal and emotional. It was unlike anything many of us have known in years of covering the EU, a debate that seemed to go to the heart of what the EU's core values are and should be. The summit was also heated on another topic, relations with Russia, as Eastern Europeans blasted a last-minute attempt from Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron to make overtures to Vladimir Putin. We'll get into all of that in a moment with our podcast panel, as well as taking stock on where we stand on the coronavirus front. And later in this episode, we'll take you inside the most important EU body that most Europeans have never heard of, Coroper the Committee of Ambassadors, credited with keeping the political machinery going through the pandemic. And later, you'll also hear from Carl Bildt, the former Prime Minister of Sweden, now leading a WHO initiative to coordinate a global coronavirus response. You'll hear him in conversation with Politico's Sarah Wheaton, who's also with us now as part of our podcast panel. So I'm surrounded by chiefs this week. I have our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. And chief policy correspondent, Sarah Wheaton. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here with you. Great to have you. Um, we thought we'd catch up on a couple of things, um, things that have been much talked about uh, lately here in Brussels and elsewhere. And of course, the coronavirus remains, you know, the overarching story, if you like, which dominates our lives in various ways. Sarah, you know, there've been various controversies lately, but, but probably the big issue right now is just the, the Delta variant. How big a deal is it and how is it affecting political decisions? Well, how big a deal it is for any individual person is affected by whether that person is vaccinated or not. So if you're fully vaccinated, the Delta variant doesn't really make a big difference for you. If you're not fully vaccinated, it means that there could be a higher chance that you will catch the coronavirus if you put yourself in a risky situation. And so for governments, it really depends on how they have done with their vaccination campaign. But when we hear this thing of like, oh, the Delta variant has become the dominant variant. Okay, A, that's among unvaccinated people usually. And B, like, that just means that that's the main one that's floating around. If, you know, Coca-Cola lowered their price relative to Pepsi, suddenly we'd be like, okay, everybody's drinking Coke instead of Pepsi. Everybody's still drinking an unhealthy sugary drink. Does it really make that much of a difference? Right now, there are not signs that the Delta variant causes greater illness or hospitalization than the other things that were floating around out there. 
Right. It just seems to spread more easily. Yes. Just imagine yeah. if Coca-Cola had Darwinian evolutionary power behind it to make it tastier and more attractive, more contagious. Yeah, if it could, if it could just naturally evolve. Naturally evolve. Exactly. There's yeah. the real conspiracy theory. <laughs> There you go. Um, but it is, in one way, it is affecting things at the political level, particularly when it comes to travel, right? Because obviously there was the hope, there's still a hope that Europe can continue to open up. But one thing that's giving uh, governments pause and the EU to an extent as a whole pause is, is the spread of the variant and, and how that affects who can travel and when they can travel. How are we kind of seeing that play out? Exactly. Well, we're seeing many of the same trends that we saw early in the pandemic and in the middle of the pandemic where countries that rely on tourism are really eager to let people in and countries that don't rely on tourism are really eager to continue keeping the virus at bay. And so we've now seen Portugal really be heavily affected by the Delta variant. And that has created some issues at the council level. Yeah, it's it's both the tourism issue and we're seeing yet again the difference between countries that are risk averse or cultures that are risk averse versus those that like to gamble. So say the UK, which has got a lot of Delta variant going around and still insisting it should open up as quickly as possible. Angela Merkel, not exactly known for going out on a, on a risky uh, jaunt in the EU saying, you know, whoa, slow down. Let's stop some of this travel. Let's slow down the reopenings. So you're seeing both, I think the, you know, tourism is definitely a fault line. Southern European countries pushing very much for a reopening, but also this question of when should you lift the restrictions on individual freedoms. Right. And also seeing the, the kind of, if you like, a disconnect between sometimes what's agreed at EU level in terms of guidelines from the commission or others, and then how different countries choose to interpret them. And that gets tricky when you're in a block that's meant to be borderless, right? But one thing I think you've been looking at, Sarah, is also the question of even if you have a kind of standard way of determining who's had what vaccine, who has previously had COVID, we have this uh, digital COVID certificate, which, um, you know, the European Union is pretty proud that it's been able to agree a kind of common standard for this. But that still leaves a lot of room for interpretation about what you do with that information, right? Indeed, there's always been this issue, even when this debate was just within the European Union, about whether vaccines that were not approved by the European Medicines Agency should be accepted for travel. And so the when we're just talking about inside of the EU, that debate involves the Sinopharm and Sinovac, the Chinese vaccines, as well as Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine, which both of those are heavily used in, in Hungary, especially. But now we've seen this debate also extend beyond the European Union. And we've heard complaints in the past week from officials in African countries and in India saying that vaccines that they got through COVAX are not going to be accepted in the digital green pass. And so the main thing that we're talking about there are Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines made by the Serum Institute of India. They technically have a different name, Covishield. And it's a little bit technical as far as medicines regulation, but the European Medicines Agency didn't approve the Serum Institute of India as like a location to make European AstraZeneca vaccines. So there's has been like furor from officials in India and, and parts of Africa saying, oh, we're banned from travel in the European Union because we're not eligible for these digital green passes. It's a little bit of a red herring because the digital green passes are for Europeans. And basically, even if you carry this digital green pass, it seems like it will just be an easy way to show which vaccine that you have that will be valid and recognized. But nobody's obligated to let you into their country, uh, you know, really under any circumstances at this point. And if you're coming from India, a place where 
the Delta variant, as far as we know, originated, that is still dealing with a pretty horrible epidemic. That's going to be your problem getting into the European and, Union. And this is a super complicated conversation on so many different levels. So we know the vaccines made in the U.S. are largely approved. The big ones, Moderna, BioNTech, Pfizer. And yet, as Sarah and I both know, the U.S. can't even agree on having a single national driver's license. So there's a big question about how is the U.S. going to have a single vaccine certificate in the way that the EU does? It may not. Some folks I hear already starting to snicker about, oh, you want to lead the world in technology and you're going to have your citizens taking a picture of some piece of paper and uploading that or downloading that to their mobile phones and all part of the same conversation. But you can't pretend that these technicalities don't matter, for instance, about the Serum Institute, when in fact, this was a big issue related to the Russians and had they come and gotten EMA approval for the factories where uh, Sputnik is made, for instance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like this could be as you know, we've had the, the situation of European travel opening up to an extent. But as, as if you like, we try and open up the world, suddenly all these other issues emerge like, okay, how do we prove Americans have been uh, vaccinated? And what about these different vaccines that are being used? Uh, you mentioned COVAX era, which is this uh, system for, you know, sharing and vaccines and making sure the developing world has access to vaccines. Suddenly, all, I mean, this has been complicated enough already, and now we're going to have a whole different layer of complications. And it seems like also just on the political front for, for the EU, which has kind of wanted to portray itself throughout this as the the good guys, the ones who open up, the ones who exported vaccines, if they are seen to be excluding or that even there's a fear that they're going to be excluding, there's a kind of two-tier system here for who gets in, who doesn't, that's not a great look politically. That's right? problematic. Plus, you know, there's obviously so much hope that we're getting past this pandemic and summer is here and there'll be holidays. And yet, you know, you need to look no further than 48 hours after this European Council summit last week, and Battelle, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, tests positive. He's already had one dose of vaccine, and you realize we are not out of this by any stretch. And the politicians definitely aren't out of this. Turns out none of them have had to isolate, as far as we know. They say social distancing measures were in place, but you know that just shows that, wait a minute, so we should still be social distancing, obviously, because it's still not over. Right. This is it. And as you said, uh, David, just before we started recording, COVID turned out not to be a main subject at that summit. And I wanted to touch briefly on that European Council from last week, just because it was so extraordinary. It was a very heated discussion, particularly around the dinner table. There were a couple of, you know, bones of contention, big issues, one of them uh, being this kind of last minute initiative from Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron on relations with Russia. But I think even more, and that was remarkable in itself, the kind of ferocity of the reaction against that from other member states. But, you know, one of the really interesting things was the leaders also spoke in unusually personal terms, particularly about the Hungarian government's anti-LGBTQ plus measures. David, it was quite a striking moment. It was not your usual European Council summit. No, it definitely wasn't. And speaking of Battelle, he spoke in very, very personal terms about himself being open as a gay man and his mother and her not being happy about this. So extremely personal. I'd actually, as you know, Andrew, I would connect the issues because, in fact, Viktor Orban seems to have ripped a page from the Putin playbook. This what the Hungarians would call their anti-propaganda law. Nearly identical legislation was passed in Russia in 2013 
It is anti-gay legislation intended to suppress discussion of, you know, rights issues, of issues of equality. So there's real genuine concern. But indeed, and I would say COVID actually was a big part of this summit. It just didn't end up getting talked about outside the summit room because they moved on to these really heated discussions first on this law in Hungary, where again, some very impassioned interventions. I mean, Mark Rutte, the uh, prime minister of the Netherlands, basically telling Orban, why don't you just leave? Get out. If you can't follow the fundamental principles of the EU, why don't you just go? I mean, that's a striking thing for anybody to say openly, plus then to relay to all of us. As it didn't fall, and you couldn't see where it didn't is also an alternative. And it was the first um, summit where we had partial press presence. And then, of course, on Russia, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron putting forward a proposal, still perplexing to some of us why they thought this was a good idea, knowing how strongly Poland and the Baltics feel about being tough and firm principled when it comes to Russia relations. And what they had floated was, you know, a summit with Putin sort of modeled after what Biden had done. Of course, the U.S. has a very different relationship with Russia. But that conversation really blew up. And in fact, leaders of the two biggest, most powerful countries in the EU really got schooled. In the end, they got very strong conclusions. Some of the Russia experts would say, some of the best policy on Russia articulated by the EU. But the process was so awful that, you know, they weren't getting credit for it. They were actually getting chided for just how dissonant this conversation was. So that went late. And they did talk about COVID and they did talk about Turkey and migration of all things. We have uh, Jacobo Baragazzi with his story about the asylum office and how that agency is now going to be the first step forward. And just amazing how much was going on at this June summit. David, you wrote this article about how, how Macron really kind of thinks that the Americans are overreacting to Putin and how others are overreacting to Putin. And he still wants to forge this relationship. It made me think of how Macron seemed to be really determined to forge this good personal relationship with Trump, which I don't think ever really did him any good. And David, I'm wondering, do you think that this is just like Macron being convinced of his capacity as a charming Frenchman or, or you know, what's yeah, going on? It, it, it really is. I mean, well, also his taste for being in the center spotlight. And he, you know, I think it just drove him nuts. I don't think Merkel needs this. I think he egged her on a little bit, you know, after Geneva, where you see Biden and Putin together. And it's like, oh, are we back in the Cold War? But you know what, in the end, those two countries still do have the world's biggest nuclear arsenals. There are aspects of, you know, global security that there are reasons why the Russian president and the American president are going to get together. But this just bothers Macron. And here, what was a little bit annoying to some of us who've covered this very closely was a suggestion by some in Berlin and in Paris that, in fact, all they're trying to do is have a dialogue. Well, excuse me, you've had a much better, more consistent dialogue. Merkel and Macron both talked to Putin in April. Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, has had two 90-minute phone calls with Putin in the last three months. France and Germany are the guarantors of the Normandy format to talk about uh, the peace deal that's supposed to be implemented in eastern Ukraine. You've been talking all along to the Kremlin when the Americans basically stopped. So don't tell us you're trying to forge a dialogue. You've got a dialogue. The problem is it hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. And that is a different it problem. Felt, it felt like, yeah, they weren't so much. I mean, yeah, you would hate to think that they were motivated by such, um, you know, base emotions as jealousy. But uh, it was how come these two leaders are standing having a summit, you know, on issues that affect Europe? Why shouldn't we get our moment uh, like that as well? There seems to be an element of that. do affect Europe. But then, Macron, you got to step up and say, OK, France is a nuclear power and we're going to talk that way and get into these arms control talks. And we're going to declare that the French nuclear umbrella stretches all the way to Poland and the Baltics, which those countries would be glad to hear. But they've never heard it said outright like that. And instead, they believe if they end up needing help, Washington is their one hope. 
just to sort of fill in for Matt Karnitnik here, I, you know, this French nuclear umbrella, you know, there's your strategic autonomy right there. <laughs> it's a punchline. Yeah. And I think it's also there is a question as to how quite how happy the, the Bolts and others would be to be relying on France and what France might expect in return. But I guess we'll see. And, and our other missing colleague, Reem Mumtaz, would say, you know, if the Americans want to talk about strategic autonomy, they're ready to show Europe. You want strategic autonomy? Look what will happen if they turn their backs. Yeah. Uh, so. Lots yeah, no, I was up. thinking that Reem would have plenty to say on this subject as well. Well, we'll have Reem and Matt uh, back again before exactly. too long for sure. But for now, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. And Sarah will be back with us a bit later to introduce our feature interview. So now let's catch up with our senior EU reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Hi. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we have you with us today because we wanted to dive in in a bit more depth to a body that's really central to how the EU works, but you don't normally hear a lot about it. And it's a subject of an article you wrote for us recently, deeply reported article. We'll include a link in our show notes. So that body is Coriper. Just begin by telling us what Coriper is. Coreper is a French acronym, which means uh, Comité des Représentants Permanents, which means that it is the Committee of the Permanent Representatives. And this gives you already an indication, because uh, on paper, they are ambassadors. But they are so special that they are not called ambassadors. <laughs> they are called permanent representatives. Yeah. So these are the ambassadors from the individual member states, the member countries who represent their country here in Brussels uh, in front of the EU. But one of the reasons you looked into them recently is that they had a particularly central role during the, the pandemic. What made them different from other EU bodies during this time? The fact that these 27 ambassadors were basically the ones left finding ways to make those compromises that are the engine, the fuel on which the, the EU is based. And they're the ones who kept meeting in person, right? When exactly. this whole, we're, we're sitting in the EU quarter now, this place went dark. There was nobody in any office buildings except where they, pretty much except where they sit, right? They kept sitting they around kept the table. sitting around the table physically yeah. to take the decisions to find the compromises that usually are found in uh, the council formations. Right, which is ministers generally. Ministers, usually yeah. are ministers, that when they meet regularly from transport to foreign affairs, and uh, they sit there and they find a compromise on the different dossiers. But with the pandemic, they were meeting only virtually. Right, and we know that Coraper officially its job is to prepare these uh, ministerial meetings and other meetings, and of course sometimes in the preparation, they're already going a long way to making the decision. But that power increased during the pandemic, as you reported. What are the other sources of power that members of Coraper have? Where does their power derive from? These very special ambassadors are special for many reasons. And there are basically three key reasons that made them so different from the other ambassadors. One is that they speak directly to the prime minister's office or to the prime minister himself or herself. In some places, there's the prime minister, in some other places, the president. Anyway, to the head of state and government or to this office or her office. And normally, ambassadors speak to the foreign ministers, not to the head of state of government. Then the second reason is because of the fact that they run these uh, embassies, these uh, delegations, that are a kind of, uh, uh, basically, there are all the ministries 
into the, these embassies. And that's the reason why in many cases, the position of uh, EU ambassador, the ambassador to Brussels, is more important in many countries than the ambassador to New York or to Beijing. Because you have to deal with the cities that go from digital to China, trade to environment. So you need all these expertises under the same roof. And uh, as opposite as a national bureaucracy, able to take decisions quickly. Because sometimes you have uh, meetings of Coreper where you get the document 20 minutes before the start of the meeting. And so then the officials have to analyze the document, understand the political gist, the political meeting, it, eh, and start writing a first report to the ambassador to discuss the document. So you have to take decisions on the national line eh, that are, uh, again, much quicker than uh, in uh, normal procedures. Mm. Are there any particular examples you would point to in terms of, of where they, we really saw their power in action? Any particular decision that they were closely involved in, especially during the pandemic, where you could really see that these ambassadors were a real power centre? The key one was when uh, there was this uh, problem with the distribution of vaccines that uh, the Chancellor of uh, Austria, Sebastian Kurz, raised. And uh, uh, that was again during a virtual meeting of leaders. So again, being virtual, they couldn't sit there and try to find an agreement. So they tasked the ambassadors. And the ambassadors uh, found a deal, but they found it in a very... I mean, it, it wasn't easy to find it. And when uh, you speak to those who were there in the room, uh, sometimes things were pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I loved about your story in that, in some ways, these people are quite rarefied, you might say, quite sophisticated. Somebody told you, you spoke to a lot of, of ambassadors for this story, and one of them talked about elite horse trading. You know, it's not just your run-of-the-mill horse trading, it's elite horse trading. And they talked about how sometimes just the raise of an eyebrow can be enough to signal something. So in some ways, it's very subtle, but in other ways... It did remind me a little bit of a mafia where there are a bunch of people <laughs> go around and gang up on someone and sort of make clear. You mentioned that Austrian example, right? I mean, they basically, I don't want to say they ganged up on the Austrian ambassador, but how, how would you describe it? It's like that. Uh, and as I said, it can be, uh, sometimes it can be brutal because uh, in the corridors, but also among themselves, it can be that uh, they go to each other and say, are you sure of the implications of what you do? Do you understand what you're doing? I mean, they, they, they really try to put strong pressure. But at the same time, and this is uh, the first reason that before I didn't finish mentioning makes them so different is that uh, during the crisis, they meet so regularly that uh, they end up knowing each other very, very well. In many cases, uh, I, I wouldn't use the word mafia, but the word club. Mm. In many cases, they've been knowing each other for 20 years. And uh, when they sit there again, they meet uh, often when there are crises so many times that one of them was saying that they see each other more often than their spouses, their wives or husbands. And uh, so they end up knowing each other so well that uh, it can be brutal but at the same time, they all say that, you know, that sooner or later, all of them had that occasion in which they had to take a position that was very unpopular with the others. Because if there is another feature that makes them different from other ambassadors is that they represent two things. They represent the national interest in Brussels, but they also represent the European interest in the capital. 
So they wear these two kind of hats. And sometimes these two hats clash. Mm. Mm. But we should also touch on, I mean, this is an important body. It's a powerful body. And you've also spoken to critics of Corriper, one of whom I think described it as a Politburo. <laughs> uh, what's the, what are the main criticisms of, of Corriper and how do you know, the ambassadors, members of Corriper respond to that? The main criticism is the lack of transparency. The fact that it is very difficult to know the, the exit positions of member states on all the dossiers. And that's something that has somehow improved. But at the same time, because now they publish at least some minutes, but at the same time, they, these minutes don't say much. And here there are two different views. There are the views of those who say that the full transparency will make impossible the work of ambassadors because uh, they need the room to maneuver. And there are those who say that uh, even if this is true, something more can be done. Yep, we could talk more about this, but we will encourage our listeners to, to read your full piece. The headline is How Ambassadors Took Over the EU. And uh, we'll include a link, as I said. Uh, Jacopo, thank you very much. Thank you. A message from Google. Supporting the growth of the EU tech sector, while also supporting traditional companies moving online for the first time, is important for Google. Our products and services enable European businesses of all kind to grow faster, export to new markets and innovate. To support industries heavily impacted by the pandemic, we're creating new tools and programs, from accelerating the retail recovery to sharing data with travel companies to help them plan through continued uncertainty. Regulation must keep pace with innovation. That's why we work constructively with regulators to promote skills and technology, make changes to our products and ensure oversight. So Sarah is back with us now to introduce our feature interview. Uh, Sarah, you spoke to Carl Bildt, former Swedish prime minister, a man of many hats uh, these days in the international arena. Um, those of us who are very old remember him having a prominent role in mediation efforts in the Balkans in the 1990s. Uh, but these days, uh, he's recently taken on a new role. You caught up with him at Globsec, the International Security Conference in Bratislava. What was that role? What was he talking about? There. So he's the World Health Organization's special envoy for the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. Other health geeks like me will know that as ACT-A. And for those who may not be a health geek but know what COVAX is, COVAX is the vaccine part of ACT-A, but it's broadly an effort to speed up diagnostics, medicines, and vaccines for the whole world. Hasn't necessarily been going that well. Carl Bildt has been brought in to basically be schmoozer-in-chief for this effort, which involves getting almost 200 WHO member countries, different layers of UN bureaucracy to work together. He's also got to kind of knock heads with big money donors like the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation, all these groups that are kind of used to doing their own thing. He's trying to get them to all work together to help us get past this thing. Even looking over this impressive resume, there's not a big health component. So kind of how did you... That's a very nice way of putting it. I can also say that I, I said that to Dr. Tedros when he called me on this. I said, why me? Uh, I know virtually nothing. I've had COVID. That was my claim to expertise on this. Um, but he said, that's not really what we need either. Well, we've got an abundance of experts all over the world on these issues. But we need someone who has an experience of coordinating international efforts and being able to do that. And then I say, fine, I do what I can. 
So, so what is your role specifically at this point? You know, who are you talking to and what sort of case are you making? Coordination in the international community is always fairly complicated. That's why we have this rather loose coordinating mechanism. We don't have any formal structures. I can't give instructions. I can't take any decisions. But we have a, meet, a weekly meeting with all of the heads of all of these different actors when it comes to providing the tools to fight the pandemic. And then we deal with the all sorts of issues that happen to be on the table to try to so coordinate information, try to smooth out differences that might be there, try to coordinate the international response in you know, as so far as we can. How would you rate wealthy nations' commitment to acting so far? Well, you can see it in either the glass half full, lots of money, or the glass uh, half empty, uh, still lacking in the order of $16 billion dollars. $16 billion is for us, you and me, a fairly substantial sum of money. But if you compare it with all the money that governments all over the world are spending supporting their economies, we're talking about three or four or five or six trillion dollars, whatever the sum is, these particular sums that I'm talking about are fairly sort of, it's less than 1%. Uh, but as we say, and it's very true, until everyone is safe, no one is safe. Uh, and that's why we must give attention to what's happening in the rest of the world as well. Mm-hmm. The Western Balkans have been the beneficiaries of a lot of vaccine diplomacy from Russia mm-hmm. and especially from China. Uh, Serbia, in particular, received so many vaccines from those countries that they're now doling out their extra doses to their neighbors. Is this something the European Union should be concerned about? I think the European Union made a mistake in the beginning. I'm not going to go into too much of a sort of being critical of, of the Union, but They allocated the vaccines to the member states. I can understand how how that happened. But they should have allocated a certain amount to uh, neighbors. Uh, Because, of course, we have a certain responsibility for the Balkans. We have a certain responsibility for Ukraine, to take that as an example. Uh, That was not done, or that was not done up front, uh, to be precise. I think when you're going to add up the numbers for the Western Balkans uh, in a couple of months, you will see that deliveries coming from the EU of vaccines has been far, far higher than from Russia or, or China. But Russia and China were there very early. And particularly the Serbian president played it very high in a way that I don't think was particularly wise of him long term, but he did it. And we are we are meeting in a hotel in Bratislava, Slovakia for GlobeSec, which is an annual conference on transatlantic security issues with a focus on Central and Eastern Europe. And we're hearing a lot of frustration about the pace of the latest EU enlargement round. And how do you feel things are going? I would have wished that it would have gone, if you see in the longer term perspective, faster. It was 2003, that's quite some time ago, that the EU said, All of the countries of the Balkans, of the Western Balkans, or Balkans that it was at that time, were welcome to be members. And and I remember we discussed at the time when could that be, and I said 2014 or 15 or something like that. We are now in 2021, and we are far from that particular goal. So I'm disappointed, disappointed both at the sort of commitment by Brussels to the process because that's been fading somewhat, but also disappointed by the governments of the region because I mean membership is. Re- depended upon you undertaking reforms. And that's been fairly slow. And we are unfortunately speaking right before we'll know the outcome of Biden's meeting with Putin. Mm -hmm. And so beyond the immediate post-summit posturing, what signs will you be looking for over the coming weeks to determine if Biden's meeting was successful? (sighs) During the coming week, I don't think I will be looking for anything in particular. I mean, my expectations are fairly low. 
if that particular summit can prevent the relationship from going even more south, fine. And I think that's roughly it. I, I, I would hope that they would start or give a signal for starting some sort of long-term strategic arms control talks. I mean, they got the new START agreement, but there are lots of complex technology issues that they need to deal with. Five years is a fairly short time. I would hope that they start that, so that in five years from now, have a new strategic arms control regime the one way or the other. I would hope that Biden had sent robust messages to Putin on uh, Ukraine, on uh, cyber operations and other things. Um, but do I expect that anything of this to make a difference in the next few weeks? I don't. And, and what's your take on, on what's happening in Ukraine right now and specifically with Russian threats? I mean, the, the conflict is still open. I mean, or two conflicts, you can say. We have the Crimea conflict and we have the Donbass conflict. And the Donbass conflict, I mean, there was a, some sort of ceasefire put in place again uh, last summer uh, that sort of worked for a while. It's working somewhat less now. Overall, we've got 14,000 people killed in that particular conflict. And we have a tragic situation in Donbass. Uh, most people have fled and why on earth Putin has not been agreeing to sort of a credible political process to hand this over to Ukraine with all of the guarantees and political arrangements and whatever that I think would have been necessary in that case. I mean, he's been, he locked himself into a nationalist posture on this that I think has been to the detriment of Russia. Have you met him in any of your various roles? I met him, but that was some time ago by now. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with the Biden assessment of him as a, as a killer? I wouldn't call I wouldn't call a person killer if I didn't know that he had been a killer personally. Um, so I wouldn't really sort of use that language. I certainly have views on the policies and say it's that there are forty thousand people killed in the conflict in Donbass. Does Putin have a responsibility a political responsibility for that? Certainly yes. A more diplomatic uh, mm. <laughs> and, and evidence based response. Yeah, and more factually correct. <laughs> and in Belarus, um you know, are Lukashenko's days numbered or is he going to keep holding on? Well, we all have our days numbered the one way or the other. And, and uh, Lukashenko is not uh, immortal. I think his regime is short term, very steady. But of course, the underlying fragility of the thing will begin to show. I mean, the economy is taking a beating by further sanctions that have been imposed. And that will cause him to have to go further to Putin and ask for more money. Putin has not been very generous with him, by the way. And Putin is probably asking for political concessions of different sorts, uh, which Lukashenko is resisting. Uh, So the situation is getting increasingly complicated from his point of view. Sooner or later, it's going to break, the one way or the other. Uh, When? I don't know. He doesn't know either. That's why he's scared. And there's also been some talk uh, fueled by the Ukrainian president about the prospects for Ukraine joining NATO. Do you think that country is ready? No, I don't think it's ready. And uh, neither do I think anyone else is ready. So what President Zelensky did was that he repeated the language, really, that was coming out of the Bucharest summit in April of 2008, where they reached that particular rather bizarre, uneasy compromise that said, well, they're going to be members, but not now. Uh, And that was a way of... uh, Bridging over the divide that was there among NATO members, and I don't think that has changed. I don't think any sort of NATO membership of Ukraine is uh, on the table within the foreseeable future. And for people who have not been paying as much attention, what, how would you define that divide? 
what the divide was in 2008 when the Bush administration in that particular case pushed very hard for what was then called MAP, the Membership Action Program, which is a sort of preliminary thing for NATO membership of an accession process of sorts. And key other NATO member states, notably Germany and France, say, no, we're not ready for it for X, or X numbers of reasons. It, it was Ukraine and Georgia, both of them at that particular time. And then they were sort of uh, trying to bridge that difficulty. They ended up with the leaders themselves sitting around a table drafting this particular language, which uh, made both of them happy and everyone else unhappy, I would say. So so you replaced Ngozi Onkonjo-Iweala as the ACTA Special Envoy, and she's now the head of the World Trade Organization. So what should this tell us about your next gig? Oh, absolutely nothing. Uh, absolutely nothing. So no, you're not aiming to run a major UN organization? I'm not aiming to run a major UN organization, no. Uh, and I was rather happy, as a matter of fact, with this rather loose structure of this particular thing. I mean, there's now a lot of reports on the table, what should be done on reorganization and how to prepare for a pandemic. And I'm saying to everyone, uh, uh, we take that decision somewhat later. Uh, now we fight this particular pandemic. And then after when we've done that, then we can start to discuss how we reorganize the international community and the global health structure and whatever, because I know that's going to be a fairly tricky business. Thanks to Sarah for bringing us that conversation with Carl Bilt. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please take a moment to hit subscribe or follow so you get our episodes as soon as they're published. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas directly via email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We do try to respond to everyone, even if it takes us a little while sometimes. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.